Welcome to another edition of Reshaping America. Kurt Flewelling here. Crazy times we are living in. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about the coronavirus um, and the ramifications of, of that that are wide sweeping. Um, we are just living in very, uh, how am I going to put this, yin and yang type of worldviews here. Um, you have two factions, uh, aside from the devastation of um, the virus, that are kind of warring with each other. Um, you have the uh, shut it all down crowd that um, says, uh, you know, we just have to shut everything down. And you you are seeing that in many states and municipalities. Um, curiously enough, many of those states that are doing that happen to be run by uh, Democrats. Very interesting, no um, no surprise there. Um, and then we have another faction in this um, yin and yang that we're all living through that we cannot obliterate our economy. We, we just cannot obliterate our economy. Now, at the, at the time of the airing of this show, we have had three consecutive uh, days of some massive growth in the stock market, but um, we've also had some pretty uh, horrible, devastating um, news from uh, you know the the jobs, uh, unemployment applications for unemployment insurance have risen to uh, 3.28 million last week alone. Um, to put that into some degree of perspective. At the height of the 2008 recession, we lost, um, there were 650,000 new applicants uh, for unemployment insurance. So 3.28 million is an absolute staggering figure in comparison to other times of economic crisis in this country. So um, I think when we uh, are in situations like this, we have to um, go with um the um, words of former Senator Jim DeMint. Uh, I heard him the other day um, saying uh, a couple of interesting words to uh, whoever was interviewing him. I don't know who it was, but it was, uh, um, you know, first and foremost, you'd think he would come out with some X's and O's of, of what to do, but um, he was a pretty good conservative when he was in the Senate. And he said, first, we must pray. And um, I think that's refreshing. A little easier for him to say that now that he is um, out of office. But um, I, I think that is sound advice to anyone that happens to be uh, going through a crisis. Um, those words kind of and that advice kind of fall on deaf ears if you're not a believer. But if you are or if you're looking to be, uh, and situations like this and crises like this usually get people um, thinking of things that are a little bit higher. I think that's a great way to start the conversation here. So uh, Senator DeMint said, first, we must pray. And then he goes on to assert, we cannot continue to keep the economy shut down. Now, um, easier said than done. But he proposed a scenario that I have heard and read in numerous other areas. And um, please forgive me if you've heard it. Many people probably have not heard it. So uh, 
here on Reshaping America, we will kind of go down this um, scenario, but it's uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, first and foremost, he asserts we must segregate older and higher risk individuals um, that are at higher risk for getting the COVID-19 virus, and I think that's pretty sound. Secondly, and this is what's happening at least in 13 states and 16 municipalities nationwide, people who can, uh, I'll use the word self-quarantine, but that's probably not appropriate, or work from home should do so. Now, this is a good opportunity to illustrate or um, point out the difference. There is certainly a difference between quarantining and sheltering in place, if you will. Um, I, I've had friends uh, and family say, well, we're, we're quarantining and you're not doing that if you have not been afflicted by this virus or come into contact with someone that has the virus or have um, come back from a foreign country. You're, you're really not quarantining. You are taking precautions uh, and you are sheltering in place, basically fancy words for staying at home and laying low. And, um, but there is a distinction. So those people that can shelter in place or work from home should certainly do so. Um, last and probably most controversial of this um, segment of our population, people are proposing um, the the folks that you know say we just cannot obliterate our economy. Um, having younger, healthy, low risk individuals simply go back to work. Now there's there's a there's a big difference between what I just said and people doing spring bake in, uh, in Italy and Spain and then coming back and acting recklessly, or people, as, as we've all seen the pictures of people in um, Florida, various spring break destinations, acting uh, foolishly, getting drunk and raucous, um, and just not having much concern for the, um, the spread of this virus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about younger, healthy, low-risk individuals that are willing to go back to work and use the necessary precautions not to <clears throat> attain or spread the virus. Um, if you look at that last category, there are, as I indicated before, 13 states and 16 municipalities that have ordered people to stay at home. That leaves roughly half of the country that is not under this order. So. Um, do you think we could get a fair amount of low-risk production out of these people? The answer is uh, we unequivocally could. Um, forwarding this three-pronged plan of attack, if you will, is um, certainly not something that is uh, popular right now at the airing of this show. But um, if our economy continues to be devastating, if those filings for unemployment insurance continue to um, go up, then certainly um, that notion or, or particularly that third category of people, we could um, definitely forward the notion that those folks could indeed go back under certain situations. Um, as we discussed on this show many times, 
there is a, a ever-growing part of our populace or politicians, and we'll get to that in a little bit, that um, don't want any of this. A bad economy is very good for a lot of people um, politically, and it's also good for a lot of uh, power-grabbing statists that would like to implement all sorts of Orwellian edicts um, and, uh, you know, getting a little tired of it, but um, we cannot continue the discussion forward without, again, hearkening back to the words of uh, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, to you and I and most rational thinking adults, um, unconscionable to exploit a situation such as this. But um, nonetheless, it is something that is being done by the media, by many politicians. We'll get to this $2 trillion coronavirus spending bill in a second here, but um, it, which was originally $1 trillion. And the Democrats found an opportunity to throw a lot of pork in this bill. We'll go over that. And um, again, uh, absolutely unconscionable, but Republicans are in a pretty difficult position with American workers hurting and needing help. And governors, particularly in crisis uh, states like California, New York, heavily populated states, just screaming out for help from the federal government. Really not the time for a lot of Republicans to stand up and chronicle line by line by line the pork that is um in these stimulus packages, and there will be more, um, but it, it's shameful. Um, and it's shameful. And at some point in time, there will be a time to do that. But this is the first iteration of uh, a stimulus package. So probably now is not the time. But um, if they continue to stuff pork into these um, relief bills, then uh, something has to be said. So the, let us let us get to this. This article says Senate passes massive two trillion dollar coronavirus spending bill. Um, the Senate overwhelmingly passed a massive two trillion dollar stimulus package late Wednesday that meant to that was meant to soften the economic blow of the coronavirus pandemic for American workers and business. The Senate approved the 880 page bill in a unanimous 96 to 0 vote. The measure would provide billions of dollars in credit for struggling industries, a significant boost to unemployment insurance and direct cash payments to Americans among several several other things. Um and before we get started on what um <clears throat> what those several other things are, let me remind you, you know, when when people talk in these debates about trillions of dollars of debt, socialized medicine, um, government uh, largesse, social engineering, all these things, they're, they're usually not received all that critically from people that aren't political junkies. Normally, when you talk about those things in normal circumstances, people's eyes glaze over and they really, they get bored very quickly. But the reason those four or five things that I just ticked off are very, very important, that we are fast realizing that crises and uh, pandemic situations and economic calamity can happen at the drop of a hat. And when they do, 
if laws, God forbid, had been enacted by socialists and, and people that are very, you know, well poised to to be in every aspect of your life, um, then we have a problem. So, again, when we watch these debates and Bernie Sanders or Biden or whomever says, blah, 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 socialized medicine, blah, 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 I'm going to give this to this person and that to that person, you know, it. It's tempting for a lot of people to glaze their eyes over, but when you have numbers, as you do in the House of Representatives, and if you have the bully pulpit, um, as you may very well have in November if someone beats Donald Trump, then these things go from the debate stage to Main Street. They go into your bank account. They go into your 401k. They go into the realm of your vocation and um, how your family is going to operate in college and all these things. So it's a big deal. So um, that's kind of the, the the backdrop for what I'm about to read here. This is an old article, several, several years old, but um, it's always good to go back to this. Um, this was an article uh indicting President Obama for increasing the debt uh, more than all the other U.S. presidents from George Washington through George H.W. Bush combined. Um, I will hearken back to this because it really kind of tells you that this $2 trillion bill, and Nancy Pelosi wants a $4 trillion bill, and Lawrence Kudlow says there's going to be $6 trillion in aid. When, when people are throwing around numbers like this, as compassionate as we want to be, and some of that money is uh, earmarked to jumpstart the economy, we have to be very mindful of, of this paragraph from this old article. It says, at the end of January 1993, the month that President George H.W. Bush left office, the total um, amount of U.S. debt was $4.16 trillion, according to the Treasury. Thus, the total amount um, the, thus, the total national debt accumulation for the first 41 presidents combined was about $45 billion less than the approximate $4.2 trillion of debt added during Obama's term. Um, it has since increased uh, under um, Donald Trump. Those of you that think Donald Trump can do no wrong, I need you to... Um, just be a student of history. The first time a government shutdown was looming at the um, first year of Donald Trump's presidency, he was very tough. He was very conservative. He said, "Shut it down. I'm not. Um, I'm not signing this budget into law because um, it spends too much money." And um, we we're all, "Yay! Donald Trump's a conservative." And then he reluctantly, or not, signed it. But he said, this is the last one I'm going to sign that's bloated and pork laden and um, increases our debt irresponsibly. And we said, oh, OK, Donald, you're you're rough, you're tough. And then what happened the second year? Trillions and trillions of more dollars. You didn't hear anything about Donald Trump bloviating or pushing his chest out. Then the third budget comes pork laden, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. You don't hear any tough talk about um, debt or budgets or any of that stuff. So, again, I think Mr. Trump's doing well in many, many areas. But I, I, I point this out 
because we're going to go into um, some of the uh, things that are in the stimulus package, and some of them Donald Trump thinks are fine, and in my opinion, in the opinion of many in this listening audience, are are not fine. So, um, you know, Donald Trump may may purport to be a conservative, and um, I would just caution you if you are truly a faith-based voter or a true conservative, particularly a fiscal conservative, please hold this man's feet to the fire and don't fall into the trap where, well, Trump good, Democrats bad. So it's not always that simple. So the uh, the next article that I uh, read here says... Um, <clears throat> Nancy Pelosi's coronavirus stimulus package includes $300 million for migrants and refugees. And um, <clears throat> this is called the Migration and Refugee Assistance um, portion of the bill. And it says Speaker Pelosi unveiled legislation aimed at exploiting the COVID-19 public health crisis by attempting to force the inclusion of a socialist wish list of policies that have nothing to do with public health and economic emergency. Senator, um, or, or, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Steve Scalise, um, Louisiana Republican said, Scalise characterized Republican objections to the proposal, including minimum wage increases, extensions for uh, visas and work authorizations, including those under uh, DACA, and temporary protect those under temporary protected status, limiting customs and border protection capabilities, requiring um, the agency to assure timely adjudication of asylums and applications, and allowing certain funding to go to sanctuary cities. So I don't know what any of the aforementioned things have to do with um, with um, the coronavirus, but they certainly are in there. And uh, Steve Scalise, congressman, is um, uh, he is the House Minority Whip. Um, he is livid about the pork that is in this. Um, some of the other uh, pork-laden entities: uh, four billion dollars. Jerry Nadler of um, congressman from New York of impeachment fame. Four million, four billion, excuse me, almost a million billion for New York museums. Um, the National Endowment of the Arts, $75 million. Um, and this is the one that has uh, been a little bit controversial. Um, Republicans ticked off a list of many things. And one of which was $25 million for Trump's, uh, for, excuse me, for the um, JFK Center for the Performing Arts. And um, Trump is very much in favor of that. And it says um, he threw political water on the, uh, or excuse me, he threw water on the political attack that, um, you know, he was going against his conservatives. Um, and he says he loves the place, referring to the um, JFK Center. And he says, I'm a fan of that, um, of the Arts Center, located adjacent to the Potomac River. Although we haven't spent time there because I'm far too busy, I'd love to go there evenings 
but I'm too busy doing things because that's more important to me than going there. He did not. He did note that the Kennedy Center funding was a Democrat request. But here's the money line in this article, and I want you guys to understand this. Um, and, and again, not to throw President Trump under the bus, I think he's doing a, a pretty good job as it pertains to um, um, the um, this um, crisis that we happen to be in now. But the, the last paragraph is the money line. Um, he says, that was not my request, he said, but you've got to give them something. It's something that they wanted. You know, it works that way, he said, speaking of how bills are cobbled together in the House and Senate. And this is one of the big problems I've always had with Donald Trump. Um, many of his um, business principles and business acumen are definitely what the doc, just what the doctor ordered as far as running this country um, as a CEO. But um, all too often, there's a lot of, quote unquote, art of the deal type stuff that comes out of his mouth. And when he makes an utterance saying, you know, it works that way, speaking of how bills are cobbled together in the House and Senate, um, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's leadership. I think if he is truly a conservative, he would um, would say, um, I think millions and millions of dollars to be paid to uh, performers and artists um, are not a good thing. And I think he should just go out and say that. And obviously he did not do that. Um, in the money that's going to the JFK Center, there is a stipulation in there that says use the money till it is expended. Now, how insane is that? Like, what if all of the cancel school three months out, like the governor um, Kansas did and, and some of these other draconian Orwellian declaring, um, you know, edicts and um, predictions, which we don't know if they're going to come true three months out. What if we get our arms around this thing sooner rather than later? So the stipulation in this money says use till it's expended. What if they only expend 25 million of it? So they get to play with the other 50 million kind of reminds me of, I used to donate a lot of money to the red cross and the red cross was um, on the public airwaves and television airwaves all the time after nine 11, just pleading with people to donate. And many of us did. And because there was such tremendous loss of life and not a lot of saving of life, God forbid, um, they had a lot of surplus in their coffers. And um, I found out a lot of the, the money that was donated to help the 9-11 um, people affected by 9-11 were going to multicultural coloring books. Um, uh, some of these entities were... Uh, either stupid enough or honest enough to say we were banking the money um, for future uh, crises. Hey, I think it's uh, good that you used your money wisely and bank some of it for future crises. But if you're out there hawking for 9-11 Red Cross relief, like you're, you know, using the coronavirus to to uh, solicit funds from people, then it should be going 
to things that are directly coronavirus related. And many people contend that um, $75 million for the National Endowment of the Arts and the JFK Center are frivolous. And uh, I would contend that um, you could put forth a very compelling argument that they are. And um, so, I mean, this leads us to um, where where is Joe Biden in all this? You know, this this guy in a half a year or less is uh, either going to be the president or not of the United States of America. What does he have to say about this? And, um, you know, true to uh, true to form, Mr. Biden is saying some pretty um, interesting things. Um, he is saying. uh and, and as I said before, there, there will be subsequent bills um, in addition to this one. And Joe Biden said in some of some of the things in these subsequent bills will be he's sitting down funding for the Green New Deal. Now, in a time where unemployment uh, applications rose to three point two eight billion in one week, and an economy that was chugging has been absolutely devastated. People are debating as well they should about not millions, not billions, but trillions of dollars going either where it should go or where it shouldn't go. And at this time, you have Joe Biden, presidential candidate, saying funding for the new green deal or the green new deal i don't even know what the heck it's called green new deal are most assuredly going to be in one of these packages along with same day no id voting and a whole host of other things that have absolutely nothing to do with a pandemic of covid 19. so uh again these things when people are on stage saying blah 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 it it may be um laughable it may be infuriating. It may be something that you roll your eyes and don't really pay much attention to. But when you have a major candidate for president that could be president in less than a half a year in the throes of a crisis saying, hey, man, since since the goodies are flowing fast and furiously, um, how about some bucks for the Green New Deal? That's insane. That is absolutely out of control, insane. And saying it's insane is one thing. But if he ever got into power and the numbers increased in the House and the Senate flipped, things like this are not things that we talk about on the radio. They're actually real life, bona fide, in law things that we have to all live with. So it's not that far of a jump from the debate stage to the um, to reality when a crisis hits and a crisis has hit and this is what we have. So um, we are going to uh, pivot a little bit from the uh, coronavirus spending bill and some of the pork that is in there that is absolutely infuriating um, to um, Something that really troubled me the other day, I um, I heard, heard a story about a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a bioethicist that was recruited 
by um, a major hospital to advise them um, on bioethical um, considerations uh, for people who get ventilators or do not get ventilators. Now, when I heard this story, I had to kind of back up a little bit. Um, as much as ventilators are in short supply and as much as um, manufacturers were caught some degree f flat footed. I am not aware of a situation, and I could be totally wrong, where people are um, choosing between P patient A and B to get a ventilator. However, I know that that could very well be the case at some point in time, even though um, our medical um, com our, our medical companies are, are definitely manufacturing things at a feverish rate. And I have every confidence that they will um, supply the ever-increasing demand of ventilators and other things. But it does not stop the discussion. And this is a discussion that has been going on for quite a while. And um, it really, it does kind of concern me because the need for people like these bioethicists to be recruited by hospital systems is really kind of a hop, skip, and a jump from the death panels proposed in Obamacare a few years ago. And, you know, um, poor Sarah, Sarah Palin, um, just because she was attractive and articulate and was very popular, um, people loved to make fun of her. And, and when she opened her mouth about the death panels, um, she was widely criticized. And since then, since she's been beaten down by both sides, unfortunately, um, the criticisms of the death panels or the demagoguery of the use of the term death panel has certainly been something that people have calmed down a little bit and not really um, concerned themselves with the details of Obamacare. But that's unfortunate. And one of the things... Um, I'm uh, actually reading from my book, Reshaping America, page 96. Um, it, it was uh, when we, this chapter happens to be, uh, do we value life? And there's a, another chapter on Obamacare, but this particular segment here um, kind of speaks to how close uh, we are. If we indeed have bioethicists advising clinicians on, well, patient A is a 79-year-old uh, retired woman, and patient B is a 59-year-old productive man, and they both need a ventilator. They're both clinically identical as far as um, their reaction to COVID-19, their prognosis, and um, theoretically, we have one ventilator left. Who gets it? And so these according to this story, um, this bioethicist and many like him are being recruited to discuss scenarios such as this. And I think it dovetails very nicely into what I'm about to read. Um, this, uh, I'll just pick it up right in the middle here. It says, although proponents of these boards and the boards I am talking about are called independent payment advisory boards, IPABs, um, they were an integral part of Obamacare, and this is what Sarah Palin referred to as a death panel. Um, 
Although proponents of these boards assert there are, they are necessary to control rising healthcare costs, the unintended, and I have in parentheses, or intended consequence of such boards will undoubtedly be the rationing of healthcare. The rationale of proponents of these IP ABs is that there uh, is an exploding need for healthcare and only limited funds to even attempt to fulfill this need. Someone has to rein in these costs. And at first blush, this sounds mildly logical. However, by anyone's estimation, certain categories of Americans are simply going to be denied or severely restricted as it pertains to what type of health care they will receive um, as they age. And I go on to write in this book, um, and this is in reference to uh, President Obama's infamous statement in one of his um, addresses to the nation um, where he said, you know, maybe grandma can take a pill rather than have a procedure. Um, But anyway, uh, I go on to write here, a panel of unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats when posed with the question, does grandma need that artificial hip will simply refer to some sort of actuarial table or chart to determine that she only has a few years of unproductive as determined by the state years left, as opposed to a fellow American who has several productive years left that needs the same type of prosthetic. Prosthetic devices cost a lot of money, and when rationing, always a byproduct of socialized medicine, um, is the determining factor in the treatment of patients, grandma is going to be out of luck. And this is where I refer to President Obama And I say, I hope that pill that President Obama was referring to is as effective as grandma's degenerative condition will be um, very painful. So, um, and I refer to Psalm 71.9 that says, do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. Now, a lot of people think, like, I didn't really understand much of that, Kurt. Um, I can break it down to you very quickly. Under normal circumstances, with a tremendous um, burden that um, our older population is putting on the healthcare system, people talk about these things and referring to actuarial tables and insurance companies making decisions based on the bottom line rather than patients is, is a reality under normal circumstances. But in times of crisis, when things are indeed in short supply, um, i.e. ventilators, um, these bioethicists or these people that feel that they can make decisions, um, and these are, by the way, unelected bureaucratic people accountable to no one, absolutely no one. They are the quintessential definition of a czar, if you will, that a president appoints. And um, it's very chilling that these panels um, of of just a group of suits can start to make uh, determinations such as this. So it's it's a real situation under normal circumstances. And in a a pandemic situation such as we have here, it's even more um, critical to... uh, to watch these people like a hawk and um and in in my opinion and this is just my opinion end of life decisions should be made um between uh, doctors patients 
patients, families, and clergy. And however you want to define clergy, you certainly um, you certainly can do that. But um, when we start making decisions that are much more weighted by unaccounted, uh, excuse me, um, unaccountable, unelected bureaucrats, we have a big problem. I had a grandmother, God rest her soul, that was um, 90 years old. But this was a 90-year-old that worked in the garden, brought in the vegetables, and um, had a very hearty life. And she um, uh, was in need of an artificial hip. And the orthopedic surgeon put an artificial hip in a 90-year-old woman. And a lot of people had a problem. You know, that um, those healthcare dollars could be uh, allocated for somebody else that is perhaps more productive or younger or uh, is not going to burden the system unduly. Let's just, as Barack Obama said, give grandma a pill rather than a procedure. And thankfully, her orthopedic surgeon um, did not feel that way. And you know something? She lived till she was 94. And the last four years of her life, as um, it pertained to her hip, um, were not a problem. This was not a woman that was bedridden, writhing in pain, hopped up on um, opioids because she couldn't take the pain in her hip anymore. And that's the way it should be. And a lot of people think it's not that simple to just say, we're Americans, we don't stand for socialized medicine, and anybody can get anything they want to at any time. Well, you know, it may not be that simple, but it certainly is is not, in, if I have anything to say about it, it is not going to slide into a situation where um, she is advised to go home and take a bunch of drugs because she's not worthy of a artificial hip. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people now that have um, a big problem, and they are statist, that Trump is not um, uh, availing himself to more provisions in the Defense Production Act. They want him to take over industry and basically um, order industry to produce this and produce that. And, and you know, a lot of people, the Defense Production Act is something that's a little bit nuanced and has a lot of layers. But I will tell you that fundamentally, uh, a guy like Donald Trump is not going to um, is not going to go whole hog into um a fascistic top-down ordering of the Defense Production Act to be in full force, ordering uh, medical device companies to make ventilators. This is a this is a classic example of his, at least right now, respect for private industry, and um, and that's not sitting very well with people on the left that want him to just wholesale take control of the production of these things. And, you know, if you don't think that's chilling, let's let's go back to the definition of socialism and I'll read it for you. A political and economic theory of social organization, which advocates that the means of production, distribution and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Now, don't get fooled by the word, word the use of the words community. That doesn't mean me and you and Fred on the corner get to decide um, even though we are kind of part of the government, the government is run by whatever politicians we put in there. 
And that does mean the government. And you go to any socialized country in the world, and there's a few winners and many, many losers when it comes to business. And the uh, businesses, I'm using quotes here, you can't see on the radio, that play ball with the government will get the government contracts. And again, this is socialized medicine. Um, this stifles innovation and creativity. It almost always invariably um, invites rationing. It invites these panels that says this citizen is worthy of that and this citizen is not worthy of that. And that's not who we are in the United States of America. So Donald Trump's urging and meeting with business leaders to um, to uh, talk to them about production is certainly something that um, he is willing to do and he has done. Uh, but wholesale wide sweeping edicts and enacting every um, aspect of the Defense Production Act is something that he does not want to do and leftists are begging him to do it. And you have to ask yourself, why are they begging him to do it? Are they begging him to do it because um, they're concerned with the spread of the coronavirus? Maybe they are, but are they more concerned with the power grab that invariably um, finds itself happening during times of crisis? And to unring a bell is very difficult to do. So when the government and um, manufacturing get in bed uh, for the long term, that is not uh, who we are as a, a free society here in the United States. And this is very problematic. And I think Donald Trump is doing the right thing as far as, um, you know, uh, not implementing and some would contend he is implementing some portions of the Defense Production Act, but um, not implementing a lot of the uh, Defense Production Act, because this is this is territory that we do not want to be in. So, um, you know, I, again, the, these are these are issues that a lot of Americans have never even thought about. But you have to think about them and you do have to talk about socialized medicine and socialism and these things that Bernie Sanders and many on the Democratic stage for the last few months have been preaching. Um, God forbid any of these people were in office firmly ensconced in the three branches of government um, when this uh, outbreak uh went down the road. I mean, the, the bungling, mismanagement, and subsequent government power grab and the dissemination of goodies to all sorts of people that have nothing to do with the coronavirus would, would have been mind-boggling. Um, if you think your 401k is, hurt, 401k is hurting now and you've lost your job or you've been laid off, um, consider yourself very fortunate that there is a Republican Senate and a Republican in the White House. And if they were not, um, there would be all sorts of problems that would be dwarfing what we are going through right now. So, um, you know, that's what we got. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, toward the end of the show here, I would, um, you know, we, we've gone over the X's and O's of some of the issues that have been uh, that are in the news today. But um, I think in general, 
as Americans, as faith-based voters, as Christians, if you are a Christian, um, these are times to not panic. Uh, when you panic and when you have representatives in government that are fanning the flames of panic and you have media outlets that are fanning, fanning the flames of panic, um, decisions are made, power grabs are um, left, right, and crazy every week. And as, as you guys know, this, this stuff changes daily as far as the things that are going on. And when things are moving fast and furiously, um, people like Nancy Pelosi, Gerald Nadler, Adam Schiff, and others, uh, Bernie Sanders, um, they are very well poised to take advantage of these things. And I just find it to be unconscionable the level of pork that um, many people on the left have stuffed into these um, stimulus uh, packages or relief bills, if you will. So, um, you know, it, it does kind of dovetail into what I'd like to talk about at the end of the show. And that is, you know, who is your God? Um, you know, it, it, we could wring our hands and ring the phone off the hook with uh, our investment uh, people, and we could um, start to do all sorts of crazy things. And there's a lot of good things to do during these times as well. You know, it does make us think about how dumb, fat, and happy we are, and some of the things that we could trim from our budget, and some of the ways we do things, and some of the idols we do have. But um, so it is very good. But um, I think, sadly that any reflection that's going to happen um, is for the most part, for most people going to be a distant memory in a month or two when this crisis is um, pretty much over and people will kind of forget many of the lessons that God wanted to teach them during this period of time. Um, I kind of hearken back and I've done it on the show before to my, um, father-in-law who was a, uh, a millionaire and he was a builder and he went to the well one more last time before he was uh, the tender age of 60 years old and he um, went into a big project and any of those folks that know that um, the most vulnerable person in any um, building endeavor or any of these things is, is the person that puts up the risk capital and he has to go to the bank one more time and uh, start one more project with the hopes that that project's going to yield him um, a little bit more money so he can retire and not have to work anymore. And um, he went to the well one too many times. And as many of you know that are older, in um, 1986, we had a banking crisis, even though the 80s were... Um, excellent for the economy. There was a banking crisis in 86 and um, the rug got pulled out from under many builders and they um, got on the hook for millions and millions of dollars that they had to pay people. And when the smoke cleared, my father-in-law's fortune was not a fortune anymore. Um, he was fortunate that he got out with a little money, but 
when you're 58 years old, staring down a life expectancy of another 25 to 30 years, the money he had was not much. And I remember watching this poor guy who did not know God at the time, sitting on the living room floor, and every single day he had either Fox News, CNN, MSNBC on their financial um, shows. And at the end, of, at 4.30 at the end of the day, if his stock portfolio, as meager as it was, was up, he was in a good mood. And if it was down, he was wringing his hands. And the next morning, he would get up and do it again. And that was basically his life. And he lived and he died. And his mood was predicated on how up or down the stock market was. What a absolute sad state of affairs. Um and, you know, at that point in time, his money and the money he amassed as a hardworking individual was his God. And when we when we hear the word idol, we oftentimes think that it's a bad thing, but it could very well be a good thing. Um, you know, many of us are going to have to, during this um, point in time, ask ourselves um, what our idols are. And I think this crisis is really bringing them to the fore and God is working on us. Is your idol work? Is it exercise, alcohol, pot, certain people you can no longer see, your kids, your kids' success, uh, their ability to um, navigate college or sports? Um, I mean, many people are going out of their mind because they can't watch any sports on television right now. So as I said before, these um, a lot of these things are not necessarily horrible things, but if they're coming in between you and God, it's something that God is talking to you about, um, you know, uh, being safe uh, during these crazy times is important, uh, it, but, um, you know, your God is the only God that is going to uh, save you during these times. Um, James 4, 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So when you draw near to God, he will certainly draw near to you. And uh, I think a very interesting one in uh, Judges, uh, a verse on idolatry, it says, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Um, that's an interesting one these days because many of the things that led people to ignore that Jesus-sized hole in their heart, which we were all born with, and I do mean all, um, many of the things when Jesus is tapping at the door of your heart and he wants to come in, that we have effectively utilized um, or availed ourselves to prior to this pandemic were many of the things that I clicked off work, providing for the family, our kids, uh, many people just obsessed with chooching their kids around here, there, and their kids are their life and, um, and many, many, many other things. And if we fill our lives, with enough things that still small voice called the Holy Spirit um, is going to be increasingly drowned out. And now one of the interesting byproducts of what's happening is that we have time. We have time on our hands. 
we can't go out and do the things that we did before. And some of us can work remotely, but many of us can't. And we're in, in many of those municipalities, there's nothing we can do. Uh, we can only watch so much Netflix in a 24 hour period of time. And it forces us to, um, to listen to God or perhaps for the first time ever in your adult life, invite Jesus Christ into your life as your personal savior. So, um, I know in these very challenging times, many people are becoming increasingly agitated and frustrated and uh, looking to one entity or another, be it government or um, Amazon <laughs> or whomever, to fill their needs. And I would suggest that you try as best you can, because these are challenging times, to use this time, because it's not going to be this way. We will get over this as Americans, and this will be a distant memory at some point in time. But seize this time to listen to what the Lord is telling you. James 1, verse 5 speaks of wisdom. If you're a believer, take that verse to heart. He's talking to you about many, many things in your life. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, this would be an opportune time to make him Lord of your life. And the pain and anguish and agitation that many people are suffering from now will be something that you won't suffer from. It, you will be calm. You will be loved. You will understand that you have um, a helper that will get you through these times that is much better than alcohol and pot and Amazon deliveries and Netflix movies. So uh, that is my uh, that is my charge to you at the end of Reshaping America here. And um, we will see you next week. And hopefully um, things will be much better. We, we pray to our Lord above that this uh, virus is killed and this great country gets back on its feet again. Have a great day.